So today we're going to be wrapping up the histology of the respiratory system. I know you guys don't usually see me here for histology, but I do know a little bit. So what little bit I do know, I'm going to be sharing with you guys today about the respiratory system. Uh, we always have our copyright, and these are the objectives of the lecture. We're going to cover most of these objectives within the lecture. And of course, this is from your textbook in terms of the assigned reading. So just as a little bit of a review before we get into the clinical aspects of the respiratory system. We know that basically you're starting with the two parts of the respiratory system. We have what? The conducting part and the respiratory part. And so as we go through the lecture, we'll be going from the conducting areas in terms of the larynx, going down into the trachea, into the bronchi, and finally into your bronchioles and your alveoli. So that's going to be the pathway in terms of what the, um, the flow of the lecture. I'm going to start with a clicker question, which is a review from yesterday's lecture. So I'm asking you to get your clickers out. And oh. All right, no, no. So that was a bust. Um, all right, so in, because my clicker question did not seem to work properly, let's go to, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. So what we'll do is we'll discuss it together. I will make sure this is open so everybody can get a chance to click in, but we can discuss the question. So it's open again, so if you didn't click in before, Make sure you click in so you get your attendance portion. But let's have a look at the image that we have here, which again is gone. All right, so the image that we have here, which is taken from which part of the respiratory system? The answer is there already, but it's also taken from the trachea. So yesterday you would have learned that the trachea and your extrapulmonary bronchi, which would be your primary bronchi, they share the same characteristics. And as you go from your extrapulmonary bronchi into your secondary bronchi, you have changes in the characteristics within the wall of the system. So let's go through our answers individually. Contains helically oriented ribbons of smooth muscle in the muscularis. Where do we think this was taken from? Which part of the respiratory system was this taken from? Was it from the trachea? No. Extrapulmonary bronchi? No, because that's not the correct answer. So where was it taken from? So if you have, if you're seeing helically oriented muscles or ribbons of smooth muscle in the muscularis of the wall, where is this taken from? Terminal. Okay, so terminal, you would have smooth muscles within the wall, but the helical arrangement of the smooth muscle is more specific for where? Secondary bronchioles, bronchus, sorry, I heard someone say secondary bronchus. So in your secondary bronchus, you have the helically arranged ribbons of smooth muscle. Remember, that's the first part of the system where you're going to start seeing smooth muscle within the wall. What else do you have in the secondary bronchus? You have cartilage there. How is it different from the cartilage that we're seeing here in the trachea or the extrapulmonary bronchus? You have cartilage plates, right? So it's broken up into cartilage plates. All right, lined by stratified ciliated columnar epithelium with goblet cells. Does that sound familiar? No? 
what kind of epithelium do we have in the what kind of epithelium do we have here in this part of the respiratory system? Pseudostratified, right? So your respiratory epithelium, remember, is a pseudostratified ciliated columnar epithelium with goblet cells. D, epithelium contains clara cells. Where do we see clara cells? Right, in our terminal bronchioles and our respiratory bronchioles, right? So we see clara cells there. And what kind of epithelium do we have when we get down to the terminal bronchioles? Uh, simple, simple cuboidal epithelium. All right, and E, responsible for gases exchange. Where does that occur? Alveoli, right? Where do you first see gaseous exchange occurring? Respiratory bronchiole. Why do we have that occurring in the respiratory bronchiole? Why does that happen? Because we have alveoli, right? Remember the respiratory bronchiole, the wall is interrupted by alveoli. So alveoli would be basically the functional unit responsible for gaseous, gaseous exchange. So that's basically what we've discussed here, going through the different layers of the respiratory system. So what I would like you guys to do is when you're reviewing, go through the different layers in terms of the bronchial tree, try to figure out what the similarities are, try to figure out what the differences are so that you will be able to identify them not only on your slides but in your clinical vignettes. So we're going to start off in the larynx and we're going to talk a little bit about cancer. The most common cancer that we have in the larynx is stratified squamous or squamous, car squamous cell carcinoma. So where do you think that's going to happen? If you have a squamous cell carcinoma, most likely it will be happening where you actually have squamous cells within the larynx. And where is that? That's your true vocal cords, right? So these would be your true vocal folds. And why do we have a squamous epithelium there as opposed to, let's say, a columnar epithelium or a cuboidal epithelium? Specifically, it's a stratified squamous. You have lots of vibration. So remember, your stratified squamous epithelium is more of a protective layer of epithelium, and so that's important. Now, one of the risk factors we have here is smoking. Um, and some of the symptoms, if you do have a carcinoma of the vocal folds, what are some of the symptoms you think the patient would have? So you have a carcinoma of the vocal folds, so we can see here. This is a nice example of one right here. In this patient, what symptoms do you think this patient would have? Hoarseness, right? So good, hoarseness, because of course you're affecting the, the ability of the vocal folds to move properly. So those patients would have hoarseness. Um, you may actually have referral of pain to the air, and that's an interesting symptom because the nerve that innervates this area actually also does a little bit of innovation in the air canal, and so sometimes patients may feel that they're having pain in the air even though it's actually a, a, um, a tumor that's actually on the vocal folds. Now, it's a stratified squamous epithelium, so basically you have what's called dysplastic changes. So initially, sometimes in epithelium you would get me uh, metaplasia, but here you have dysplastic changes. What does that mean, dysplastic changes? means that the epithelium itself is abnormal, right? So within the layers of the epithelium, you're going to see something that looks very abnormal, and we will see keratin pearl differentiation or formation, which we'll see in the upcoming slide. So here we have a normal image. This is going to be where you have those vocal folds. This is where you're going to have your stratified squamous epithelium. Here we have an image of a patient with carcinoma of the larynx. So just for orientation, this is going to be the lumen in this area, and this would be the epithelium. And we can see that this epithelium is very abnormal, right? With a stratified squamous epithelium, what happens? The basal layers, you have more of your columnar and cuboidal cells, but when you get to the top, you should have what? 
completely flattened or squamous cells. And so that's how it gets its name. However, if you look through this epithelium, we can see at the very top of the epithelium near the lumen, we're still seeing cells that are cuboidal or columnar in shape. So this means that this epithelium is abnormal, it is dysplastic, and these are the changes that can lead to cancer within those tissues. So here we have one of the characteristics of any stratified squamous or any squamous carcinoma. It's called keratin pearl formation. So all of these abnormal keratin cells, they actually wrap together and form this concentric layer of cells called keratin pearl. And so if you have a squamous carcinoma in any region of the body, this is very common for that to happen. All right, so again, this is your um, carcinoma of the larynx. So moving on, this is a slide that should be very familiar. It's basically, again, a review slide. Looking at the respiratory epithelium, we talked about the fact that it's strat pseudostratified columnar. So here you can see our columnar cells. They are ciliated. We have our goblet cells. And we know that the reason that it's called a pseudostratified epithelium is that even though all the cells touch the basement membrane, right, because you have different heights of your cells, it looks as if the cells are in several layers. So it's pseudostratified columnar epithelium. Here we can see these are going to be your cilia, and we look at the cilia. And in the cilia, we know we have these microtubules. And the microtubules of the cilia are very important. They have a specific arrangement that you have within the cilia, as well as a different arrangement within your basal body. But we know microtubule in terms of function. You guys would have done that before. They help maintain the shape of the cell, the orientation of the cell. They're very important embryologically for movement, right, for um, organ, organ movement within the embryo as well as for things like spindle formation, meiosis, mitosis. So you can see that basically they're very, very important. That's the aim of the slide. They're extremely important in terms of function. Now, if you have problems with your microtubules, that can lead to a syndrome called Cartagenous syndrome. And have you guys talked about Cartagenous syndrome before already? Some of you guys? Right, in lab today, if you had lab, you may have talked about it as well. So it's an autosomal recessive disorder. And basically, you have a mutation in your proteins, your ciliary proteins, the microtubular proteins like tubulin and dynein. And this example I have here shows us the function of these mitre, my, um, cilia, especially within the bronchus and within the respiratory system. So the function basically is to sweep all of the mucus that's been produced upward and outward so that it can be swallowed or spat out. However, if your cilia are not working together, all in one motion or all in one direction, you can see here that you have abnormal movement of the cilia. Some are not working, some are actually working in opposite direction to others. And so this mucus gets stuck within the bronchus or within whichever part of the tract that you are. And that means that it's a very nice, ripe area for you to have bacterial infections. And so patients with this come up with lots of respiratory tract infections. So it would be in the bronchus or even within the sinuses. So patients would have chronic respiratory infections such as sinusitis or even bronchitis with this syndrome. Situs inverters, which means that the organs are basically in the reverse position. So instead of the heart being on the left side, it will be on the right side. And accompanying that, your liver, which is supposed to be on the right side, would be on the left side. So that's a complete situs inversus. And this is basically because, again, remember, these tubular proteins are responsible for movement or migration of your organs during embryogenesis. So if that does not occur properly, then, of course, you would have your organs located in, the, in abnormal places. And finally, you have sterility. 
And you can have sterility, this is mainly talking about sterility in males, but you may also have decreased fertility in females who have cartaginous syndrome. Why do you have sterility with this sort of syndrome? Right, you see, remember, you have those microtubules forming the axoneme, which is important for the movement of your spermatozoa. And so if you have immotile sperm, basically, of course, you wouldn't be able to fertilize the ovum. However, in females, you guys will talk about this next term, within the uterine tubes, you also have cilia. And the cilia within the uterine tubes are there to help move the ovum along the uterine tubes as well. So that as well would be retarded, and so females can actually have decreased fertility due to cartaginous syndrome. So those are the three major symptoms or signs that you would see with patients who have your cartaginous syndrome. Here we can see what a normal axoneme would look like. You can see you have your dining arms, your uh, nine plus two arrangement. Here, on the other hand, we can see those dining arms are absent. And what do you have in those dining arms? What's important in those dining arms? You have dynein ATPase, right? They're responsible for giving you the energy that allows your cilia to move. And so if they're absent, like we have here, that would lead to abnormal movement of your cilia. Okay, so that's your cartaginous syndrome, also called emotile cilia syndrome. Here, um, this is just reiterating the fact that patients with this syndrome can have infertility or sterility because of the fact that these spermatozoa are going to be containing these tubular proteins and they're responsible for the movement of the spermatozoa. And so if they're unable to move, obviously would not be able to fertilize the ovum and so patients would be sterile. All right, so let's move on to the bronchioles. So, so far we've talked about the bronchus. Right? And we've talked about the lar well, we talked about the larynx, then we talked about emotile cilia, which involves the respiratory epithelium. To what extent in the respiratory tract do we find respiratory epithelium? Where would we find respiratory epithelium? We find it in the larynx, right? Where else do we find respiratory epithelium? Trachea, where else? Primary bronchus, secondary bronchus. <laughs> Someone says all the way through, all the way through? No, so where do we not, when do we start seeing a different type of epithelium? Once we get to the bronchioles, right? So once we get to bronchioles, we now get into a simple epithelium. So it's either going to be in your larger bronchioles, you have your simple columnar, and as you go from your larger bronchioles to your smaller bronchioles to your terminal bronchioles, you then move into a simple cuboidal epithelium. So that's one of the differences between a bronchus and a bronchiole. You have respiratory epithelium in your bronchus. You do not have respiratory epithelium in your bronchioles. What's another difference between a bronchus and a bronchiole? How would you identify them? So, muscle, smooth muscle. Someone says smooth muscle. You do have smooth muscle in both, right? Because remember, they start off in the bronchus, and when you get to your terminal bronchioles, do you have smooth muscle there? Yes, you do. You have smooth muscle in your terminal bronchioles. So, someone said glands. Glands. So within the submucosa of a bronchus, you have your serum mucus glands. Once you get to the bronchioles, you shouldn't have glands within the submucosa of your bronchioles. All right, so that's another difference between your bronchus and your bronchioles. So that brings us to this condition, asthma. And basically what you have is constriction of your smooth muscles. So that means it's going to happen within the bronchioles specifically, and that's because in the bronchioles you don't have cartilage, 
right? And so the cartilage is not there to, res to restrict the movement. So basically, if the smooth muscle contracts, the lumen of your bronchioles gets narrower, okay? So it's a bronchiolar problem when you think about asthma. So you have smooth, mus smooth muscle contraction, which means that you can get the air in. However, the smooth muscle contracts, and so the air is difficult to get out. So it's an expiratory problem. So patients have difficulty breathing air out. And so patients who come in will have what we call expiratory wheezes because they're trying to force air out of the narrowed lumen of their bronchioles. Okay? Now, in addition to the fact that the bronchial smooth muscle is basically hyperactive, so it's contracting more than it should, you may also have some inflammation occurring with that. So within the walls of your bronchioles, you may actually have infiltrates by your immune cells. So you would see a bit of thickening of the wall as well as some inflammation. And that would be the reason why when you have asthma, we have dual therapy when it comes to asthma. Does anyone here have asthma or know of someone with asthma? Okay. So you usually have what? One or two inhalers. You have two inhalers, right? You have your short acting inhaler which would have something like your albuterol, which is basically going to inhibit your smooth muscle contraction, so it causes your smooth muscle to dilate. But you also have what's called your longer-acting inhaler, which is going to contain your corticosteroid, which is supposed to help decrease the inflammation that you have within this system as well. Okay, so basically, patients have difficulty getting the air out of the lungs. So this is what it can look like. Here we have a normal bronchiole. So where do you think this one was taken from? Which part of the respiratory system? Is it, a, uh, is, is it in the bronchus, first of all? This one here. So we're looking at the one right here. Is it in the bronchus? Nope, not a bronchus because we're not seeing any cartilage, right? So we know we're looking at bronchioles. So here we have that nice um, simple cuboidal epithelium, and I think this was given to you as an example of your terminal bronchial, right? So this is a terminal bronchial, and within this terminal bronchial, you would not only have your normal cuboidal cells, but what other cells do you have within the terminal bronchial? Clara cells, right? So you'd also have Clara cells. So this would be what the normal bronchial would look like. This bronchial here is actually a larger bronchial, so it's not a terminal bronchial, but it's a larger one. But what we can see here that's um, characteristic of asthma is we can see lots of smooth muscle here that's being contracted. We can look at the wall, which is much thicker than the wall that we have here. So we can see that we have some thickening of the wall. And the lumen is actually, you can see that the space is not a nice wrong lumen. And that's because the contraction of the smooth muscle is narrowing the lumen of your bronchioles. All right? So that's the condition in terms of asthma. So we talked about what caused, what's the problem with asthma? We said it's smooth muscle contraction or abnormal smooth muscle contraction. We talked about how we can treat it in terms of our different therapies. All right, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. It's actually two diseases in one. So you have chronic bronchitis and you have emphysema. And we'll talk about them separately. So let's start with chronic bronchitis. This is a typical presentation for a patient with chronic bronchitis. They come to you saying, Doc, I've been coughing and coughing for the last two or three months, and I'm bringing, I'm bringing up a lot of sputum. And if you take a further or deeper history, they will tell you that this, been, this has been going on for at least two years, three years. And this is the clinical diagnosis of chronic bronchitis. So there isn't any imaging tests or any blood tests that we do to diagnose chronic bronchitis. It is, it is a purely clinical diagnosis. 
with this history. Two months, at least um, chronic cough for two months or three months over the past two years with lots of sputum. Now, if you take a further history, this patient will probably tell you that, well, I've been smoking, this is a 50-year-old patient, so he's probably been smoking for the last 20, 30 years. So this is a very common um, predisposition in terms of patients who get chronic bronchitis. So again, because it's a clinical diagnosis, we have to look at things like how long is the cough, how often does it recur, so duration of the cough, at least two to three months, reoccurrence, it recurs frequently over the last two to three years. Um, we'll talk about why he has the cough and the expiration, and of course, as we said, it's a clinical diagnosis. Now with chronic bronchitis, what we have is that there is an excessive production of mucus within the system, so you have mucus that is blocking up the lumen of your bronchi and your bronchioles. In addition to that, you may have what's called metaplastic changes of your epithelium. Now, your bronchus or your bronchioles should normally, your bronchus rather, should have what? What should your bronchus have? What kind of epithelium? Pseudostratified, ciliated, columnar, and the purpose for that is the cilia is able to move all of this mucus out of the bronchi so that you can swallow it or spit it out. Now, you may have, because of the patient coughing consistently, right, what does coughing consistently do? It's lots of vibration. So what do you think will happen to the epithelium of your bronchus? They would undergo metastatic changes, and so sometimes they can change into a stratified squamous epithelium to deal with the fact that you're coughing, and so it's, been, it's undergoing a lot more um, pressure than it normally does. And because you changed from a pseudostratified ciliated epithelium to a stratified squamous epithelium, you've lost what? You've lost your cilia, so the patient loses the ability to actually get the mucus out of the system, and so again, the problem gets worse and worse the more you cough. All right, so basically the patient is coughing in order to get the mucus out, and the chronic mucus production is one of the things that happens within this um, condition. So this is what the normal bronchus looks like. Where would this be taken from, this image? Secondary bronchus, yes, we can see cartilage plates. Yeah, we can see that smooth muscle, okay, that helical smooth muscle. We can see we have your epithelium, and of course, we can see our seromucous glands within the submucosa. So this is from your secondary or your intrapulmonary bronchus. So as I said, with chronic bronchitis, you can have metaplasia happening. So here we can see all of this would be extra glands that we have. So if you look at this image here, this is the submucosa here. We can see there are not that many glands within the submucosa. But if we look at this image, which is, which is a higher magnification, you can see that there's been a proliferation of these seromucous glands. And the actual epithelium has actually ha undergone a bit of metaplasia. So at this area here, let's see if I can get another image. This area here, we can see there's a little bit of squamous metaplasia. You may not be able to see it very well, but if you look at it on your slides at home, here we have a little bit of stratified squamous epithelium in a place where we should have respiratory epithelium. So this is one of the things that happens within chronic bronchitis. You have hyperplasia or proliferation of your seromucous glands. You also have inflammatory cells infiltrating within the submucosa and the mucosa. So here 
all of these are your inflammatory cells. So things like neutrophils, lymphocytes, etc., they're going to cause inflammation. So one of the ways that we can treat this would be, of course, anti-inflammatories like corticosteroids can actually help to treat patients with chronic bronchitis. And of course, because you have this many mucus glands, you have a lot of these this mucus building up here within the lumen, and because of the metaplasia, you're not able to actually bring that out. Now, what kind of symptoms would a patient have if you have chronic, if you have this buildup of mucus within the bronchus? What kind of things do you think the patient is going to be predisposed to? Respiratory tract infections, and that's one of the things that patients with chronic bronchitis they present with very frequently, is you have these respiratory tract infections. So you have a patient comes in, uh, an infection, you treat them with a course of antibiotics, but they may come in two months from now or three months from now with another infection because again, this uh, the mucus that's in there actually has no way to actually get out. So that's one of the parts of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So again, the mucus within the lumen prevents air from getting out. So that's an obstructive pulmonary disease. And emphysema is another part of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Now, this is just a reminder. Remember, your neutrophils contain things like collagenases and elastases. So that's going to become important as we talk about um, emphysema. So our case is a patient who presents with severe wheezing and shortness of breath at rest. So the patient is just sitting in a chair looking at TV and he is breathing very hard and when you listen to his breath you can hear the wheezing song and that's because he's not able to get air out. And if you can't get air out, what does that mean? What's the problem with not being able to get air out? Can't get air out, stays within the alveoli. It also means that not enough oxygen and air would be getting in to get into the, um, to the system. And so, of course, you're always at an oxygen deficit when you have these conditions. Okay? Right, now, in low-grade activity, so we're just sitting here, we do have elastase that's re released by neutrophils on a regular basis, and we know that elastase is going to degrade elastic fibers. Now, ordinarily, we have something called alpha-1 antitrypsin produced by the liver. And what that alpha-1 alpha antitrypsin does, it, it neutralizes your elastase. So your elastase activity is not very high, and so the elastic fibers within the body, especially within the alveoli, would remain normal, right? So that's in the normal case. Now, if you have something like an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which means that you decrease the amount of alpha-1 antitrypsin that you have, that means that the elastase activity cannot be moderated, and so they will basically be degrading your elastic fibers. Or if you're a smoker, a chronic smoker, again, that actually increases neutrophil activity, and of course, that means it would increase elastase activity. So if your elastase activity goes up, that means that the elastic fibers within your alveolar septum will, of course, be destroyed. Now, how does air get out of your alveoli? So let's say I take a deep breath, my, alve my alveoli expand. In normal breathing, how would your air get out? Basically, it's the recoil of your elastic fibers to push the air out of your alveoli. So if these elastic fibers are damaged, that means your alveoli will expand and expand and expand, and eventually what happens to them? They rupture. And if they're next to each other, you have several alveoli rupturing, and so you get these large air pockets within the lung. So here we have, this is what your normal lung looks like. This is what emphysema would look like, large air pockets within the lung. 
Okay? Now you might think, well, that means I have larger pockets of air. Isn't that a good thing? No, that's not a good thing. Right? Where does gaseous, gaseous exchange occur? In the interalveolar septum. So if you've destroyed the interalveolar septum, large air pockets are not going to help you because you're not able to get air into the um, circulatory system. So you get these large, here we can see this is what it would look like on an H&E preparation. So this is what normal low magnification of your lung would look like. You can see lots of interalveolar septum and of course your alveoli. This is what a patient with emphysema will look like where you have these large air pockets and very little areas of septum. So that means you have very little exchange of oxygen, carbon dioxide occurring in this patient. Okay, so you can see why they would be breathing quite heavily and struggling to get air in. I mean, struggling to actually oxygenate the blood as they should. So this is what it would look like in a gross specimen and this is what it would look like histologically. Now, in terms of your imaging, you guys have done imaging already. You guys did imaging. Have you had lecture 46? You'll have that one today. <laughs> so you would have done some imaging or you will do some imaging of the chest. So this is a normal chest x-ray. Can anyone tell me? Okay, I, I will leave that for Dr. George to do. But this is a normal chest x-ray. So if you look at it, you can see here the lung expansion looks normal. You have a nice dome of the diaphragm. Okay, And you can see that, remember, when you look at the lungs on, an, on a radiograph, it should not be completely black because what do you have within the lungs that's going to give you lung markings? You have blood vessels, septum, all of that. So that should give you lung markings. So you can see normal lung markings here. However, in this patient, you can see that this is excessively what's called hyperinflated and the diaphragm is depressed. So that means that patient is storing a lot of air within the lungs that cannot get out. Okay, so that's what we would see um, with that patient. Now, if you were to percuss on that patient, which means you tap on the patient's chest and we're tapping over the lungs. Now, ordinarily, when you tap on the lungs, you hear a sound that's called resonance. It sounds like you're tapping over a hollow organ. However, with this patient, because you have so much air in there, we hear something that's called hyper-resonance. So when you tap on it, it sounds hyper-resonant, and that's something you'd find on physical exam. All right, so get your clickers out. We have another question, which hopefully will work properly this time. Okay.
Okay, so our patient has severe shortness of breath even at rest, and he has. Okay. Okay. 82%. All right. So our patient has severe shortness of breath, even at rest, and he has a history of being a heavy smoker for the past 40 years. Physical exam shows that he was barrel-chested, and that's basically a physical um, exam finding because of that long hyper hyperinflation, and there was decreased breath sounds on expiration. And you would also hear what's called an expiratory wheeze, where you hear a wheezing song as a patient is trying to breathe out. Right, so we think it's emphysema, and so yes, 82% of us were correct. It's because of the lack of elasticity in the alveoli, because those elastic fibers have been destroyed. What about option A? Treatment with a sympathetic agonist will, relieve, will alleviate bronchoconstriction. What condition would that be? Asthma, right? So, you know, in the bronchioles, or in the bronchus and the bronchioles, your sympathetics causes bronchodilation. So if you give them something like albuterol, which is a sympathetic agonist, it, um, it actually simulates your beta-2 receptors that would cause bronchodilation. Patients with this condition are usually sterile. That would be Cartagena syndrome and thickening of the bronchiolar walls due to hyperplasia of, hyperplasia of the mucous glands would be what? Chronic bronchitis, right? So those are the four conditions we've discussed so far. All right. Sis, yes, question. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so far for anatomy, you've had your uh, cardiac anatomy small group. So for the cardiac exam, percussion has actually been removed from the cardiac exam. So if you notice within the cardiac, within your manual, we did not put percussion on in your manual because it's no longer done for the cardiac exam. We, are, we have other and better ways of figuring out how large the heart is on a cardiac exam. But next week after your exam, when you do your respiratory lab, you will be doing percussion because it's a very integral part of the respiratory exam. So on the respiratory exam, you will be taught how to percuss, where to percuss, as well as where to auscultate. So when you think about physical exam, we have the four tenets of physical exam, inspection, palpation, percussion, and auscultation. So when it comes to the respiratory exam, as well as the abdominal exam, you are going to be doing percussion. But other than that, it's not done. So it's only done for respiratory exam as well as for the abdominal exam. So you're going to do it this term for respiratory and next term when you do the abdomen. All right? All right, cystic fibrosis, also called some very long word that I'm not going to try to pronounce because I know I'm going to massacre it. But basically, it's viscid or vis viscid, mu viscid. viscid mucus, which means it's too thick. And that's because you guys probably know more about this than I do. You did it in genetics, right? Because of a problem with the gene, the, C the CFTR gene, which means that the secretions that you have, they lack chlorine or chloride. And so they're not as watery as they should be, I guess you can say. So they're very thick. 
And that means that from your exocrine glands, if you have this very thick mucus, it is going to block up all of your exocrine glands. So everywhere or anywhere you have an exocrine gland, you would have this mucus being blocked. These glands would be blocked up. So within the respiratory system, you can see symptoms and signs of, from cystic fibrosis because you have these seromucous glands, which are exocrine glands. So these become blocked up, and so you have this very thick mucus that actually remains within the lumen of your, bronchi your bronchus and your bronchioles. But you're not only going to see signs and symptoms of cystic fibrosis in the respiratory system. So it's not limited to the respiratory system. You will also see in the GI system, for example, your pancreas. You have exocrine glands in your pancreas, and those exocrine glands can be blocked up. Okay, so everywhere you have your exocrine glands, that would be where you would find problems. So, for example, you have them sinus problems, the mucosa within your sinuses, your nasal cavity, your oral cavity, they have exocrine glands, and so, of course, the viscid mucus can lead to mucus building up. And again, we said because if you have mucus that be, remains stagnant in any area, it means that bacteria can actually grow there and give you an infection. Okay? So patients would have frequent respiratory infections because of the fact that the mucus is very thick. It's a very um, ripe ground for bacterial growth, and so patients come in with these um, frequent respiratory infections. But you will also have other, other areas that are actually affected as well. This is what the lung can look like. So this is actually a lung. So here we have a very low magnification. So here we have what looks a little bit like normal lung. You can see lots of the spaces. If you were to take a higher magnification of that, you would be able to see your alveoli. And this is an area of a bronchus here. And this is a very large lump of mucus here, as well as a very large lump of mucus here. What do we, what's this here? Cartilage plates. So you can see cartilage plates. This is a bronchus, right? What kind of bronchus is this? Secondary bronchus. And we can see this is a very large piece of viscous mucus that is basically stuck here within the bronchus. So you can see why this would be causing patient, problems for the patient, right? Because it blocks the bronchus, so the patients have, definitely have problems with breathing. And of course, we said as well, lots of respiratory tract infections. All right, hyaline membrane disease is another interesting condition. It basically occurs in premature infants, and it's due to surfactant deficiency. And if you lack surfactant, what happens? Why is surfactant important? Right? It prevents collapse of your alveoli by reducing the surface tension. So if you lack surfactant, you have collapse of the alveoli. If you have collapse of the alveoli, that means you cannot have gases exchange occurring. And so you have what's called infant respiratory distress syndrome. It's also called hyaline membrane disease because you do have this proteinaceous um, eosinophilic substance, which is basically um, a lot of collagen substance that actually can line your alveoli, forming what's called a hyaline membrane, and of course it's going to further cause problems for the patient. So, Now, in treatment, for example, if you suspect that your patient is going to deliver prematurely, you can give the mom corticosteroids. Why can you give the mom corticosteroids? What would that do? Does anyone have an idea what corticosteroids would do? So a patient, do you think maybe it's 28 weeks and there's a possibility of a premature delivery, you give the mother corticosteroids. And what that does is it stimulates your type 2 nemocytes to produce more of your phospholipids that create your surfactant. 
So you're basically hoping or helping the lung to mature so that even if the baby is born a bit early, you're decreasing the chance of the baby getting respiratory distress syndrome. So you can treat moms who, um, who, may, who think may deliver prematurely with corticosteroids. This is what it can look like on H&E. So this is supposed to be lung, right? It doesn't really look like the normal lung tissue that we've seen already. And that's because you can see all of these pink proteinaceous or eosinophilic areas. That's the hyaline membrane that is actually developing here. You can see that you're not really seeing the actual alveolar spaces. That's because they're collapsed. That's called atelectasis, where you have collapse of your alveoli. And also, we can see this is your interalveolar septum. Does this look normal to you? Look how thick it is, and look at all of these inflammatory cells. So you also have an inflammatory process occurring here where your interalveolar septum is invaded by these inflammatory cells. Okay, so that's called hyaline membrane or infant respiratory distress syndrome. On imaging, this is what it can look like. It's called a ground glass appearance of the lung fields. So here we can see we're not seeing the nice, typical, clear lung fields, where we can see this sort of hazy appearance of the lung field. So this patient and this patient here, that's what hyaline membrane disease would look like on an image, okay, or in a, in a radiograph. And finally, we have our last one, which is going down into the actual alveoli now. So you notice that what we've done, we've gone from the larynx all the way going down through the different conditions that can affect the different levels of the bronchiola of the um, respiratory tree. And now we have lung cancer. We're going to talk mainly about squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. You do have another type called small cell carcinoma, but we're not really going to spend much time discussing this because squamous cell is more common, I think. Leading cause of death from cancer in men and women. 90% because of cigarette smoking. Okay, I'm going to leave that there. Squamous cell carcinoma arises in the bronchi, right, where your respiratory epithelium, what happens here is that your respiratory epithelium, we said, is respiratory epithelium, pseudostratified ciliated columnar epithelium with goblet cells. However, smoking and other things can actually cause a metaplastic change initially. So instead of this respiratory epithelium remaining as respiratory epithelium, it changes to a stratified squamous um, epithelium. And then that stratified squamous epithelium, because it's still undergoing the toxins from whatever it is, is then going to undergo dysplastic changes. So remember we said dysplastic changes means that within that epithelium you have abnormal cells. And dysplastic changes is basically the basis that leads to cancer. So that's the pathophysiology behind it. Here we have a normal histology looking at the bronchus, okay? Uh, so this is our pseudostratified epithelium with goblet cells. Here we have our smooth muscle, okay? Here we have our cartilage. So where is this taken from? I can give you all the Dr. Jules and I can give you this image in an exam and ask, where is this taken from? Is it from trachea? No, it's not from trachea. Why is it not from trachea? All of this smooth muscle here, we don't have that in the trachea, right? Uh, is it from the extrapulmonary bronchus? Nope, because we know that the extrapulmonary bronchus and the trachea have the same histological features. So in order for us to see 
cartilage and smooth muscle and respiratory epithelium, we must be in the secondary bronchus. Okay? So smooth muscle plus cartilage plus respiratory epithelium means secondary bronchus. All right, so this is from the secondary bronchus. So here initially we can see that this, again, we're looking at our cartilage, we're looking at our epithelium, and here we can see quite clearly that this initial respiratory epithelium has definitely undergone a change here. because so you can see, it's a very thicker, it's a very thick epithelium. So this is a stratified squamous epithelium. That's going to be that metaplastic change. And if we were to take a higher magnification of that area, we would see eventually that the cells would become very abnormal, causing what's called dysplastic changes leading to carcinoma. Okay, so that's going to be what we would see in a patient with squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. Now, if we were to take a very high magnification of the tumor itself, here we can see, again, this does not look like normal lung tissue. So this is that dysplastic squamous cells. And we can also see that we can see some of them are coming together, forming these concentric rings. So we can have what's called your keratin pearl formation with your squamous cell carcinoma of the lung as well. This is what it may look like on an image. Now, if a patient has carcinoma of the lung, for example, that starts to affect areas like your pleura, your visceral pleura, what kind of symptoms would the patient complain of having pain? Is that one of the common symptoms of patients with lung carcinoma, pain? Would a patient with a tumor of the lung affecting the visceral pleura complain of pain? No, why not? Right, because the visceral afferents, you remember, you don't, have very, you don't have visceral afferents really within your visceral pleura or within your lung parenchymus. It's one of the exceptions within the body where you don't have that. And so, of course, that's why these tumors of the lung sometimes are very hard to detect because the patients may not present with a typical con um, complaint of pain. So you have to look for other symptoms to let you know what the problem is. All right, so that's the end of the lecture. It's pretty short, basically talking about the different things that can happen clinically with the respiratory system. And I will see you guys in a few weeks when we talk about the renal system and the clinical aspects there. Yeah.